Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 172. This week we talked with Sarah Walker Betcher, author of Technically Wrong about real examples of software mistakes that are biased and alienate users. 15 underutilized features of .NET. And Google is shipping the new Pixel phone without Android. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Aspose, the market leader of .NET and Java APIs for file business formats. Natively work with DocX, XSLX, PPT, PDF, MSG, MPP, image formats, and many more. This week, we have Sarah Wachter-Betcher. She's the author of Technically Wrong, Sexist Apps, Biased Algorithms, and Other Threats of Toxic Tech from W.W. Norton. She is also the co-author with Eric Meyer of Design for Real Life and the author of Content Everywhere. She runs Rare Union, a content strategy and user experience consultancy based in Philadelphia and works with clients worldwide. Welcome, Sarah. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So, uh, Carl, uh, what's going on with the comment of the week? So before we get to the comment of the week, we forgot our awesome, awesome giveaway contest that we're in the middle of. Oh, we're doing that first. Perfect. Yes. uh, That's why I have the note on there, Raygun. So (laughs) Raygun is uh, giving away some pretty awesome packages. You can either win a uh, year license from them, and they're also giving away to the three runner-ups some swag packages that are going to have some merch in there. So if you want to get those, you need to email us at feedback at msdevshow.com. Uh, what is the biggest programming fail or kind of bug that you've seen? Um, and, and one of the things we, we want to remind you, because we've gotten some pretty good uh, ones in so far, uh, feel free to anonymize this. If you're currently working at a place where you're like, this is definitely top the list, but you don't want to get fired over disclosing what some of those are anonymize it. The story is important. The details aren't. Well, tell us that. So, you, well, yeah. Or just tell us that you want to keep just, it anonymous. Yeah. yeah. And and we'll do that for you. So we definitely want to hear what these are. We definitely want you guys to be able to win uh, the awesome prizes from our sponsor. That's why we have sponsors is for your benefit. Mm-hmm. So get those in email is feedback at msdevshow.com once again. Okay. Yeah, we do have some great entries, but you know, what's always amazing about this too is like one in like 5,000 people actually submit. Actually, I would say statistically speaking, it's like less than that. It's like one in 10,000 people actually like submits uh, something to this. So like your odds are all, of any kind of contest like this are always way better than what you think. You sort of yeah, imagine you- like 10,000 entries, but that's never the case. So you're, you're not competing against every listener of this podcast. Yeah. You're only competing against those with enough. Yeah. You're competing against the ones that are not very lazy, (laughs) 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 which isn't saying much. Okay. So what do we have for the comment of the week, Carl? Uh, The comment of the week is I'm going to set this up a little bit. So Jason betrayed the podcast and appeared on another episode (laughs) of, uh, uh, I think this week in uh, channel nine, Yep, you're on an episode of, uh, you actually did a pretty good one. So we'll have a link into the show notes to where you can find that. It was like 20 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was pretty good. And somebody commented on on that episode and on Channel 9. He says, I have to say that MS Dev Show is one of my favorite podcasts. 
Thanks for the work you do, Jason and crew. Yeah. And that was from FM 2000 on uh, Channel 9. That was that was so awesome, by the way. I go on one other show and the <laughs> first and I, may, I don't know if it's still the only comment, but the first and yes. only comment is about our podcast. So that was that was just really cool to see because they have, you know, the, the, there's a totally different audience over there. But our audience happened to come in and watch it. And, and that, that was just awesome to see that kind of comment in there. So if you want to get mentioned on the show, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, Facebook, uh, comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher, or anywhere that we produce anything, because apparently we'll find it anyways. <laughs> yep. Okay. Uh, so we have just a couple quick news stories. So the first one I think is pretty self-explanatory, but if you want to mention anything on it, Carl, Azure Event Grid now supports event hubs as a destination. No, the only thing that I really want to comment is now that Event Hubs is kind of out there as as a service, they're really you know busting tail to make sure that all of the other Azure services that can integrate with it will do so. Yep. So I imagine pretty soon we're going to be talking about even more uh, Azure services that integrate with it. Yeah, it will be pervasive. Uh, Azure Data Lake Tools for Visual Studio Code October updates. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of times you think that there's some uh, Azure services that, you know, they're, they're pretty massive. I mean, Data Lake is, you know, it integrates quite a disparate amount of storage mm -hmm. entities and lets you query across them. So, you know, a, a lot of times you don't realize that, you know, something as a simple editor like VS Code can really interact with it. So check out the the VS Code, you know, extensions uh, like this uh one has one for here. You can, I mean, control Azure data lake from VS code. That's pretty mind blowing. Yeah. What I, what I like about this is, you know, if you're, if you're a data person and uh, you know, it, it, it's, it might be as a data person, you might not have visual studio installed. So being able to use something like VS code is, you know, like a hundredth of the, of the weight and, and startup time it, it, and those it, things. It, it's so quick to acquire, install yeah, and just get it's free it. and it runs everywhere. So it's, it's just a no brainer. Um, next one, top 15 underutilized features of .NET. Yeah. So I, I tweeted this one out earlier this week and I think I put, said something like, which one of these do you already use or know about? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, they put 15 on there, but I would say about half of them I either knew about or actually use quite frequently. There's a few items that I didn't know or some that I know about but never use. Mm -hmm. So uh, like, for instance, the question mark, question mark operator, that's something I think is you see fairly commonly yeah, in a common, code yeah. base. Yeah, so you use that when there's something that if it's nullable, it has a fallback. But then there's other things that uh, like currying and partial methods, those are something you might want to look into. Mm -hmm. So some of these are, are, are things that you might use a lot, and some of them are things you might need to use or look at. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the ones I didn't know about, but I was really fascinated by was the fail fast. So this right. is if you, if you're in a try catch and that has a finally, but you don't want the finally to execute, you can do environment dot fail fast. And I thought that was amazing. And not only that, but like within a day of seeing that I saw code that was using it mm -hmm. in the wild. So <laughs> that's funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a name for that effect. I can't remember what it is, but there's a name for that. Yes. So go check out these uh, underutilized features of .NET if you're a .NET developer and uh, see uh, if there's anything that uh, you could learn. Yeah, like is infinity. Yeah, I've I've used I think about half of these. 
Um, some of these, you know, have been in there a long time, obsolete attribute. I think a lot of people have used, but yep. even like this, uh, default value attribute debugger browsable attribute is super handy. I've used that one quite a bit. I've used lazy, um, big integer. I'm not sure if I've used that one. Um, a lot of the debug assert and those types of things I've used the parallel four and four H. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, I'm going to check out the ones that, that I haven't used for sure. And then our last story is pretty amusing, I guess, unless you work for a certain company, but uh, some Google Pixel 2 XL phones are reportedly shipping without Android. So what are they shipping with? <laughs> uh, nobody knows, but it can't. Uh, when you try to start up the phone, it says can't find the operating system. So, yeah. so that makes it pretty hard when you're excited for a brand new shiny phone, especially a top of the line phone from a major maker. Um, yeah. I don't know about the two of you, but like when I order something, I, it, it doesn't even, even if it's like not something, I don't know. It could even be, oh, that's a, that's gonna be a terrible example. I don't know. I always get excited for whenever stuff arrives at my house, you know, and I always have to check it out right away. And, um, especially with new tech like this, you know, you get all excited and then you open it up and this happens. That would be such a major disappointment. And I mean, don't they test these things? Like my understanding, I've heard of iPhones showing up with like photos of people at the factory. Um, because supposedly people are, they're actually like being physically tested before they leave. Um, I, I think that happens with like every iPhone, believe it or not. I'm not a hundred percent sure about that, but like, obviously this isn't happening with Android because, you know, a simple check would have found this out. Yeah. So Google did mention that they are, uh, in contact with as many of these as they know about, and they are getting new devices shipped out as fast as possible. Um, so you know, one of the things I will say, uh, the Google Pixel uh, 2 has had a bunch of issues and Google has been very responsive on uh, being communicative of how they're going to resolve that. Yep. What do you think, Sarah? Did you have a comment? You know, I was just thinking about how disappointing it is uh, to have something that you didn't expect arrive and to get this like very fancy brick in the mail <laughs> is actually going to be a really big letdown. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel a pretty bummed out when i don't know i get sent like the wrong t-shirt right like oh this wasn't the one i ordered <laughs> exactly. and i would be so much more disappointed by my phone but i think about that and i think like okay where where are you going wrong like what other red flags are is that raising because um if this product is going out the door without an operating system, like what else is it going out the door without? Yeah. Not a, not a good screen from what I hear. No. Either, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you know that this is, this is going to sound kind of crazy, but I mean, well, maybe, maybe not, but I mean, your phone is like, it's like your life companion now, right? <laughs> I mean, it's the thing that is always like right there with you. And, uh, I don't know, people just go nuts over new phones. I mean, the iPhone X or 10 or whatever you want to call it just came out and like, people are just going nuts. Like, you know, I, I didn't order one and I'm watching like the Twitter feed and man, just people are just, they're just losing their minds over this device. Yeah. You know, I, this is something I, I think about a lot and especially in the context of, of writing a book about how people are using technology mm -hmm. and, and sort of what that means. Like, <clears throat> you know, for a lot of us your phone is the last thing you look at at night and the mm -hmm. first thing you pick up in the morning. And for some people, you know, they even will read texts in the middle of the night. Um, right. It's like one of the most personal, intimate things yeah. in their lives. And I mean, there's some problems with that. I would, I would say, but, um, but yeah, like you have this really close relationship with your phone. So I think it can feel particularly, um, 
frustrating and um and problematic to have it come out and not work for you yeah exactly exactly well we won't beat up on google anymore like you know it's 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 a it's a life lesson for them and uh you know the way that i usually talk about these things too i mean just to kind of play devil's advocate it's one of those things where this will never happen again (laughs) you know like at least from from google and, and probably like other manufacturers um, but you know, for, for Google, for sure, like the process will get updated to the point where it will, it just won't be ha- possible for this to happen again. You know, they will, they will learn a big lesson out of it. every, every mistake is, is a lesson learned going forward. Right. I mean, you always hope so. And I suspect for something like this, it really will be. Yeah, absolutely. I was just listening to a podcast on, uh, on checklists. So, you know, this is just another checklist item. It was uh, hidden brain, uh, which is a really cool podcast anyway, to get off that tangent. <laughs> um, so what we're really here to talk about though, is your, your book and, and some of your thinking around this area. I saw this book and like, um, I, th- I don't know if it was, if I think it was your tweet and maybe somebody retweeted, I saw it, I saw what the book was about. And like, I immediately, um, you know, tweeted you and I'm like, you have to come on the podcast because <laughs> I want, you know, like you, you have all these great examples and, and you, you know, I looked at some of the YouTube videos and stuff that you have out there and like, you've been talking about this for years. So obviously I have a, a, a lot of experience in it. So it's, I'm just super excited to have you on. Um, so I guess for our listeners, we should just start with the basics, you know, tell us what your book is about and, and why you wrote it. Yeah. Well, I think it says a lot in the title, right? Technically wrong, Mm -hmm. sexist apps, biased algorithms, and other threats of toxic tech. Mm -hmm. Um, So I kind of make no bones about where I am with this. I think that the technology industry, um, which I consider myself part of and which I love in a lot of ways, I think it's also gone really wrong. Um, And I think that we're starting to see some of the problems with the choices that we've made. So really interestingly, you know, you were talking a minute ago about um, phones shipping without an OS and how, oh, well, they'll never make that mistake again. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. They probably won't. Um, What I'm seeing happening is companies making the same kinds of ethical and um, sort of um, human mistakes over and over again when it comes to the way that they're making assumptions about their users or, or ending up building bias into products and sadly not learning from them quickly enough. So the kinds of stuff I talk about in the book, um, things like the way that, um, for example, Facebook is constantly like resurfacing your memories from the past, even when those memories are things you don't want to remember. And while it has repeatedly been called out for that, for the ways in which that often breaks for people, they keep developing new ways of doing that um, because they're under this sort of like mass delusion that that's what they have to do is you you must be surfacing memories mm-hmm. back to people um, or looking at, at things from um, kind of a different angle. So that's sort of like the emotional component. But there's all this other stuff around things like um, products that let's say a health tracker like Apple Health launched a couple of years ago that would track every health metric in the world. So they said, except couldn't track a period. Mm-hmm. And for a full year after they launched that product, it couldn't track a period. And that's such a huge missed opportunity to make this a product that works for a lot of people, which is to say, mostly women, women who have periods. I, and- I hear there's a lot of women out there. There, It turns out <laughs> there, are, there are a lot of us. Like, yeah. And I'm also the periods are like, people have had periods for a real long time and have been tracking them for a real long Mm -hmm. time. When you think about the whole like quantified self movement and health tracking as a thing, people have been tracking periods for millennia. Mm -hmm. Um, So to just sort of ignore that and to launch a product that's meant to track all of the health metrics that matter, which is literally the the tagline that they use 
and leave that out, I'm just like, well, who who are you thinking about? Yeah. And um and there's tons of examples like this. And so in the book, I talk about a lot of different examples, and I talk about the way in which the tech industry enables that to happen and keep happening over and over again yeah. by really over investing in uh, technical solutions to things while under investing in understanding the real people that they're designing for. Yeah, no, that, that one's a good example too, because like lots of apps are used for tracking, right? And they, you know, so like my my feeling uh, as far as like the the Apple Health Kit stuff was to, you know, there's all these separate databases. Let's all push this into like a common database so that we can have data sharing. And if you uninstall one app and you install a different one, like the data flows, you know, from from one to the other one. And, uh, and so it's kind of interesting that they missed that. I mean, our own app store has all these apps, right? <laughs> so. You think that they would you know, have even had the data to, to like show that? I mean, I think that these kinds of things are really common, though. You know, just the other day, uh, you all probably saw the Google mini cupcake thing. No, I didn't. I'm, I'm usually on Bing, so I actually didn't. Goodness. Okay, so this is a, well, this, this is a great example. Um, sure. This just came out a couple weeks ago. So here's what happened. Um, so Google Maps launches this feature update to a select number of iPhone users. Um, so it was just, you know, they're just pushing it out to a small number of people testing it out. What this feature did is it would, um, when you were calculating um, directions somewhere in Google Maps, mm -hmm. it would also show you for walking directions what they said your calorie count would be for taking that walk. And then alongside that, it would also show you how many mini cupcakes that was in calories. Mm -hmm. And almost immediately, people were really upset about this. And the reasons were varied. There were people who were saying, like, this is kind of weird and shamey. Um, oh, you couldn't turn the feature off. There was no opt-in, mm. and there was not even an opt-out. So you had to get calorie. Well, so be before before you before you actually tell me that, so, like, yeah. I'm, I'm, like, I'm on the first half now. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, like, this is a great idea. So I'm just being honest with you, right? And... And, and I, and I want you to tell me like what's wrong with it in just a second. Cause I, yeah. cause it's, it's funny. Cause I always use a, a similar metric if you want to call it that, which is I, I read something one time and actually I would like to know if it's not true, but I heard, um, you know, like if you eat one M and M, like you have to walk across a football field to like burn off one M and M, you know, so it always sort of gives you this idea of like calories versus, versus exercise. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Now continue. Cause I, I just wanted to like, that's great. So yeah. I don't, I think if you are like, cool, that's a cool feature. Yeah. I like that. Great. That's great for you. Mm -hmm. I think what's really problematic is assuming that that's great for everybody. Mm -hmm. So some of the problems are things like um, for people who have eating disorders, calorie counting is really triggering. So um, I, I, I've had close friends who've had eating disorders and they have spent years of their lives thinking about calories every second of the day. And part of them getting over that is they have to learn to stop thinking about calories. Being able to avoid thinking about calories is actually much healthier for them. Mm -hmm. And that's a big deal. That might not affect everybody, but that affects enough people to be – it's a really big deal for the people it does affect. Um, but there's also other reasons. So there are plenty of people who have uh, very different caloric needs. You actually don't really know how many calories a walk is going to burn. Um, any any quantity of calories for the quote-unquote average person is going to be wildly inaccurate for a lot yeah. of other people. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's also the, the, the mini cupcakes themselves. So – First off, what's a mini cupcake? Which mini cupcake are we talking about? It's hard to even know what that means. And also, why mini cupcakes? Because mini cupcakes, you create a little cute pink 
mini cupcake, um, that tends to imply something pretty feminine in our culture. Um, and so a lot of women read that as a little bit insulting toward them. And here's the thing, like you can agree or disagree with any of the individual reasons that people didn't like this. What I find uh, unacceptable is that you could make it all the way through this design and development process and release this feature to the wild and never have had these conversations mm-hmm. and never have thought about all of the reasons this might be a bad idea. They got so much pushback for this. They pulled the feature within three hours. Wow. Like yeah. people didn't want this. Yeah. And see the, the reason, the reason that I kind of cut you off in the middle there early is I wanted to like, there, there was like a point there's like before and after. Right. <laughs> so yeah. there's, there's like Jason before <laughs> where I was like, that sounds like a great idea. And, right. I mean, and, and then I, I wanted I completely to contrast understand that with Jason that. after. Yeah. I totally also understand how this came up in a meeting and people were like, this is a good idea. Like, Oh wow. What a fun idea. And I know that there's a lot of people who think, okay, you know, um, Americans have an obesity problem and we should be encouraging healthy behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I can see how all of those conversations might come up and people might think it's a good idea. What I think needs to be happening though, is there needs to be people who are understanding, understanding a broader range of people. So understanding that there are people who, for whom this is not a good idea, um, considering the potential negative consequences of something like this, um, considering who it doesn't work for, considering whether you have the right people in the room to really have a good breadth of understanding of the issue anyway. I mean, there's a lot of things that could have that could have happened that could have taken it from, oh, no, that sounds like a fun idea to, well, it sounds like a fun idea, but actually maybe this isn't a great idea. Or maybe we can find a way to implement this that is more inclusive. So for example, the fact that you were just automatically opted into this and you had no way of opting out, I think that's a big problem. If somebody wants to organize their mapping with calorie counting, that's great. I mean, some people would really enjoy that. Um, I don't think that by using Google Maps, you should have to be counting calories, though, because right. that's not that's not what the product is for, right? right? If you're there to do health tracking, that's different. But you may be using Google Maps for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also thinking, you know, about the kind of like weird shaming factor. I have a friend with a chronic illness who cannot walk a long distance, whether right. she wants to or not, and she doesn't like anything that's telling her she's being unhealthy when she chooses not to walk because. Um, the most healthy choice she can make often is choosing not to walk because she knows if she overextends herself, she's going to be bedridden for a week, making up for it. Yeah. And, and you know, some of the users too will like, they'll walk three miles and say, okay, now I can have a cupcake. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, the feature, you're right though. I mean, it's just like, you're painting these such broad strokes like, yeah, this is, this is a great idea. Don't wait for users to report problems. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications, supports all major programming languages and platforms, and integrates with your current development workflow tools too. There's a free 14-day trial. And it takes minutes to implement. So start resolving issues in your application and check it out today at raygun.com. You should at least, at the very least, right, have a way of turning it off, right? Yeah. And I think just having a lot more critical conversations about the things that we are we're designing and building and, and kind of asking these questions about like, when we whenever we think it's a good idea, whenever like, oh, wow, that, that's going to be great to stop and say, okay, are there people for whom this isn't great? 
Um, what are the ways in which this could break? What are the ways in which this might be a bad idea? Because, you know, um, I think that we do that with technical questions, right? Like people go in and they think about, I mean, just more or less success, but they think about things like security risks. And I think that they're not thinking about human risks nearly enough. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the things you bring out in the book are, are quite a few examples, kind of like this one that we've been talking about. And you say that they happen quite a often when we don't have a diverse team building the solution. Why is that? Well, I think that that's a big part of it, at least. And so the reason being that, um, well, there's actually multiple reasons. For one, the less range of people you have involved in the process, the more you'll miss, right? Because you can only know your own experience, your own perspective. You can try to get outside of your own perspective, but you there's some natural limitation there. And so if we don't have a broader spectrum of people involved, there are more things we will miss. The other piece of that, though, is that um, there's a lot of research that says that homogenous groups actually perform worse. Um, in terms of things like problem solving or innovation, because the more homogenous a group is, so similar backgrounds, you know, like came out of similar programs and similar schools or grew up in similar places and often like same gender, same race, um, the more likely they are to converge upon a bad answer early and all agree because people don't disagree with each other. So that you get into like that groupthink mentality much more easily. Um, so having a diverse team can be really helpful on that front. The one thing I would say, though, I was just having a conversation um, with a journalist who was writing about um, the whole uh, Facebook ads and uh, the way that, like, you know, Russian sources were purchasing Facebook ads that were meant to be racially divisive. Um, and it, apparently it came up um, yesterday in some of these hearings that uh, so a question was asked, like, well, how many black people were on the team reviewing these ads to see that there was like these racially coded things happening. And so she asked me about that. And I said, yes, absolutely. I bet there weren't. But also, you also have to think about, do you have those diverse people on your team actually empowered to speak up? Um, Because statistically, when you do have, for example, uh, black people on a team, they're much less likely to be in managerial positions or positions of authority, which means that they may actually not really be able to be the hand that raises and say, hey, wait a second, you know, going against the grain when you're in a junior role is, I think, an unfair expectation. So I do think that the diversity is a huge piece of it. But I think there's another piece that's really also around building into your process and into your culture, this idea that like, we need to understand the places where we might be missing things, we need to be thinking about the human component, and we need to be thinking about fairness, all the way through. Um, because you can't just rely on, you know, we, we hired one 23 year old black person who's somehow supposed to identify racially divisive content, right? Yeah. Like that, that's, 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 that's whole, so unfair to that person, right? Right. Like what a way to set them up. Yeah. Oh, and then just be like, hey, you had one job. <laughs> right. Exactly. And it's like, no, like you can't expect somebody to be like representative for all of the race questions because they happen to be of that race. I think that that, right. that is that is a completely inappropriate burden. So I do think diverse teams matter tremendously, but I also want to be really careful there, you know, and say like, you can't just outsource this problem. Like you actually have to fix it right. within your organization too. Right. <laughs> That just that just brings up crazy thoughts of like like having consultants that that come in and do this, but you know it doesn't 
the, the you've identified the way to solve it. And, and I, and what's interesting is like, this is not new to me at all. Um, and I don't know how much you've, you've heard, like, uh, you know, the Microsoft CEO, Satya Nadella, he talks about it all the time. And he's like, the only way that we're going to build products for everybody is by having a diverse team. Um, because it's, that's who, I mean, that's who we're trying to sell to is a, is a diverse set of people. Um, so it's, it's great. I love, I love that approach. Um, so what I want to, Oh, but ahead, but I think one of the things that, you know, I really took from Sarah too, is I- enabling everybody to one, be able to call that out, but changing our process. So we think about these things mm-hmm. because I've been on a, a lot of different teams where you just spend 90% of your free time thinking, how do I do the tech? Which tech do I choose? Mm-hmm. Evaluating that, but not at all thinking about, mm-hmm. you know, how does the color of the cupcake or even do we have cupcakes? How does that affect yeah. So, and this, so, so I think this is another piece where, you know, I don't want to come out as being like, oh, that, you know, the problem is developers or computer scientists. I think part of the problem is also that we have this expectation that you really only need a technical skill set to do this kind of work. So, right, like that, that somehow, like, your background as a developer is going to prepare you for identifying all that stuff. Like, realistically, that's, that's kind of unfair fair to developers too. I do think that prioritizing um, some other skills that have not been prioritized um, along with technical ones is important. But I also think it's about roles. Like if you hire a UX person, they can't just be smoothing out the user flows. They have to really be able to ask questions around like, why are we doing this? And should we be doing this? And in a lot of places, not enough of that is happening, right? It's like that that conversation about user experience is happening at a very surface level, as opposed to thinking about a much deeper idea about what it, you know, what is the impact that this might have on a person. Mm -hmm. And um, so I really, I don't think that that should be, you know, like it's not like some lone programmer's job to understand that full impact. That's really about organizational priorities and principles and the way that things operate at a macro level. Okay. Yeah. And Carl's question, you know, that kind of leads into my next question here, which is, um, you know, there's, there's lots of, and I, I, the way I have the question phrase is around like edge cases, but in your book, you know, it talks about, um, well, I'll kind of let you explain why that's a bad way of putting it. But I said, you know, like those edge cases end up discriminating against users. Um, but like, I, I think you've touched on this when I'm in developer mode, I'm, I'm, I'm almost not even thinking about humans, right? Like I'm, I'm trying to ship a minimum viable product and I'm trying to get there as quick as possible. And it's just tech, tech, tech. And then I make all these, uh, maybe, maybe make mistakes along the way or, or I'm, you know, sort of intentionally, you know, limiting my audience and, and kind of the, the analogy that, that, that I think of, and and maybe it's terrible and I apologize if it is, but like, um, whenever you design a site, like if, if you're, if you're like the front page of Amazon, like they will work in any browser on any screen, res- like it works in anything, right? Um, if I'm designing a site, I'm going to shoot for the 90%. You know, I'm not going to shoot for the person who has some oddball monitor and, and maybe that's wrong. I, I don't know, but like that, that's just kind of the reality of, of how things are now. I'm going to say, you know, Hey, only one, maybe only 1% of my users are have an 800 by 600 screen or less than a certain number of colors on their screen or something like that. Or maybe like 1% has JavaScript disabled. And I'm going to say, you know what? Um, I, I'm going to ship my product quicker and I want to just cater to like the 90%. Um, so like, so how do I fix that or how do I find balance? Any any advice there? Right. So so 
a couple years ago, um, I wrote this book, Design for Real Life, with Eric Meyer, and that's kind of what led me into doing this mm. this new book, Technically Wrong. And in in Design for Real Life, what Eric Meyer and I talk a lot about is that um, we're very used to writing off edge cases when it comes to technical work. Exactly. Um, but what ends up happening is that we start applying that to people, and so. I don't like to think of people as edge cases. Right. I like to right, think they're, they're people. And for them, for every individual person, the only important use case is their use case. So I understand that we're not going to necessarily make, you know, everything work for everybody in all circumstances at all times. I mean, at that point, you can't, you know, you can't be everything to everyone. But what Eric and I started talking about in Design for Real Life and what I bring back in this book is this concept of instead of looking at human scenarios as edge cases, to start looking at them as stress cases. And when we say stress case, we don't necessarily just mean um, people in like a stressful scenario, although that might be a stress case. We also mean just putting your decisions up against the pressures of real life. So, for example, a stress case in the Google uh, Maps mini cupcake debacle is a person with an eating disorder. The person with an eating disorder you may not see as being your quote unquote average user, right? Like the majority of people using Google Maps do not have an eating disorder. However, for people who do, that's a really bad problem, right? Like it, the product breaks in a really bad way for them. And so if you can identify those people who may not be the most common users, but where the product has the risk of breaking really badly, so those people who might be at the edges, you know, and you can bring them, you can bring them into the center, then you can um, make your product actually work better for everybody. Um, and so I think that a lot of times there's actually really simple solutions that would make things more inclusive. So for example, not making the um, the Google mini cupcake thing, um, you know, a no opt-in and no way to opt-out product um, or thinking more about like, well, we, should we really have this like food option? Should you be able to select which food it is? Or should we, you know, should we choose, try to choose something that's maybe a little bit more neutral? Um, you know, are there different ways that we could handle this? Um, there's lots of things that could be done. Many of them would have been pretty simple mm -hmm. and, um, and that that can really make your product a lot less problematic for people. And the reality is when you do that, usually um, your, whatever, whatever you think your average user is quote unquote average user, um, things kind of work out for them anyway, right? Like they're not going to be harmed by this being something that you can opt in and opt out of. All right. So in your previous answer, you talked about like an average user. Is there such thing as like an average person? Yeah. I mean, what are, what are we talking about here? Yeah. Um, so when I was working on the book, I started taking a look at another book called The End of Average, where uh, the author had really identified that um, average is sort of a, a myth. There isn't a necessarily an average human. So he talks about a lot of examples like um, in the, I believe it was in the 40s, they were trying to figure out how to make like fighter planes work for mm -hmm. pilots. And they started measuring all of the different dimensions of their different pilots. And so they were looking at not just like height, but also things like length of their torso and length of the forearm and all of these different features. And what they found is that when they took the averages of all of these measurements and then tried to find people who match those averages, nobody matched those averages. <laughs> right. Um, like, because, because people are like, cause humans are so diverse and weird, right? Like 
people are weird. And so that what would happen is that if you tried to design for the average person, it actually fit nobody. Um, and there, that's a that's something that we see pretty commonly is that when you try to design for the average, you oftentimes end up with um, this sort of like <laughs> this amalgamation that isn't that helpful. So that when you can design for the extremes, which is what they ended up doing in things like planes, like adjustable brake pedals um, that you could adjust the height on, like when you design for the extremes, then suddenly you come up with these sort of cheap solutions to problems that seem really intractable. Um, that's why you have things like seats that move and stuff like that in your car is that it's like, oh, this is meant to be designed for like a short person or a tall person. Um and I think that that's the same kind of stuff that we need to be looking toward as we are designing technology is if we can make this work at the extremes, we can make it work for more people trying to aim toward that mythical average. Um, it let, it leads us down a path where I think that we're not seeing people as humans very easily. We're seeing them as those average people. And, um, and the other problem with that is because the tech industry is much wider than the general public and much more male than the general public and much more US centric than the, than the public too um that you also end up with a very biased sense of who the average person is mm -hmm. yeah i was just thinking too like you know from a from a pure technical standpoint i mean going back to my earlier example where like screen size and and things like that i mean imagine if you averaged all those things together i mean you have half your audience using phones half of them using desktops and you would right. be designing for a tablet, <laughs> you know, which just doesn't make any sense. But yeah, the fighter pilot example in the book, I thought was like super powerful. The fact that, that nobody actually met that, uh, or that, that nobody was average. I mm -hmm. thought, I thought that that was, that was super powerful by the way. So I, I really, yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it really is when you, when you think about the, the, the myth of averageness and the bias that we tend to have in society toward, um, like white people and toward mm -hmm. men, you mix those things together and you end up with a really skewed perspective. And that stuff is not, I, I do want to be clear. Like, I don't think that tech is like the only place where we see bias or that tech no. has created this <laughs> kind of bias, obviously. I mean, you look at, I mentioned, you know, um, cars. Well, like they didn't test vehicles with uh, like women sized crash test dummies until just a few years ago, mm. all crash tests were performed with male dummies. And so as a result, like cars were much less safe for women than for men. Like women were more likely to be in a fatal accident. Um, stuff like that is really common. I mean, that is, that is a cultural issue. It's not limited to tech, but what I think is important is that first off tech wants to design the future. Well, shoot, like we should try to fix this. And then second, that technology is not just, it's not just a mirror, right? This is what I hear sometimes. It's like, well, it's, it's a mirror of our culture. So if our culture is biased, you know, like, like for example, well, if it's true in culture that most CEOs are white guys, if you do a Google image search for CEO, you're going to see a lot of white guys. That's just a mirror back on society. And that's kind of true. But the other problem with technology that we have to understand is that it is not just a mirror. It is a magnifying glass because once we embed that in the technology, then we kind of like reinforce it over and over again. Um, so when we start building things like algorithms, um, then we start kind of taking that bias that already exists and we get better and better and better at being biased because algorithms are super good at performing the same functions over and over again and getting better at it. And so I think we have to take that as a cue that we have a big responsibility in the tech industry. Mm -hmm. 
So speaking of responsibility, one of the things that stood out to me that was pretty early on in the book is you were talking about these these untapped sources of talent in the industry and recruiters looking in kind of the wrong places for for diversity. So can you explain like what what is wrong there and, and how we can fix it? Sure. I think there's lots of things wrong. Um, so one of the things that happens, for example, is that, you know, you'll almost every large tech company now has an, a specific mission where they say they want to yep. bring in more diverse candidates. Right. And um, but then it's then you look at their diversity reports. And I was just looking actually at the most recent one um, today from Facebook. And it's like we went from two percent black to three percent black. And, you know, we are our women in technical roles like went from 18 percent to 19 percent or something like that. It's like these like tiny increases. Mm. It's like, OK, you are able to like, I don't know, create driverless cars and like put this incredible computer in my pocket, but you can't figure out how to hire more diverse people. Like, how is that? How is that happening? And I think one of the big reasons is that they tend to keep going back to the same sources. So it's like, yes, we want to hire more diversely, but we need to, you know, we can't lower the bar, for example. That's a common thing you hear. But the, the bar that they've set is not necessarily tied to who would actually be good at the job. It's tied to who has been hired in the past. And so it's like, we're looking for people who look exactly like the people we've hired in the past, but are somehow also diverse. And you go back to the same schools, right? So it's like, okay, well, if you keep going to the same schools to hire the people, you keep looking for people who have the exact same kind of like look on their CV as the people you've hired in the past, you're not going to change anything. So for example, I did some research around, um, you know, the fact that most big tech companies are not going to, let's say, computer science programs at historically black colleges and universities, many of which uh, graduate tons of diverse candidates with, you know, computer science training, um, because it's not Stanford. Well, so, I mean, most of the people working in tech right now, even though, you know, some great folks come out of Stanford, for sure, it's not like the majority of people who have had right. successful tech careers went to Stanford. Um, so that's an issue. And then the other issue that I wanted to mention is that oftentimes there's an impetus to hire diversely, but things go wrong deeper in the process. So for example, I know Facebook had an initiative where they were um, incentivizing recruiters to bring in more diverse candidates, and they did. But then at the very end of the hiring process, right before the, the that final interview where they would get hired, um, the hiring managers tended to go back to their own networks. And they so they tended to mm -hmm. reject those people in favor of somebody who looked more like them right? Who'd gone to the same schools as them and things like that. So it's like, okay, you can't keep going back and doing things like you've always done them and expecting a different result. I think that's the definition of insanity, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so like, that's mm -hmm. not going to work. Um, so you have to look at this problem a little bit differently. And um, part of that is taking responsibility, right? And like, not just trying to point the finger and say like, okay, well, it's a pipeline problem. No, you have to take responsibility, look inward, change the way you do stuff. And, and also think about all of the other things, right? Like, who are you promoting? What kind of environment do people have when they get there? Do you want to be the only woman on a large technical team of men? And if, if you have to be that person, like, is anybody concerned about, like, your experience? And do you end up just leaving in nine months because it's awful? I know a lot of women that that's happened to. Mm -hmm. So I do think that there's a huge piece of this that is, like, it's, it goes so far beyond just the recruitment phase. So one of the conversations that I've had recently among this is 
does it help if I'm a tech company and I'm hiring, uh, you know, somebody from who who is that, you know, in a minority, but I'm hiring them away from where they're already employed? That may help my numbers, but it doesn't help the industry's numbers, right? So you know, that's not going to change the industry's numbers. However, um, I don't know when the last time was that you looked for a new job, but for a lot of people they end up going into new roles so that they can kind of level jump, right? It's like you're looking mm-hmm. to kind of move up the ladder a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that does create space for more people to come in behind you. Um, and the other thing is that um, there's there's a lot of research that um, for women particularly, um, one of the only ways that they can get into more senior roles is to move to a different company because they tend to have a lot of barriers to moving up within a company that they're in. And there's um, there's a lot of research that people of color particularly are underrepresented in senior roles and management roles. So I do think that, yeah, if you're a tech company and you hire in somebody from somewhere else in the industry, like, look, if, if diverse candidates are also desirable candidates, that is good for more diversity in the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's, <clears throat> there was an example of that recently. I mean, where we hired from a, a you know, diverse candidate from a, a small company. And, and I mean, I couldn't help but think like, man, they're, they're getting closer. You know, if we keep hiring all the women and, and minorities from their company, like they're going to, it's going to be a company of all men. And then they're, you know, but I, I think you had such a good point about the, you know, up leveling and, 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 you know, you're, you're creating a vacuum over there then that hopefully, you know, cause they, they might pull from a lower level. Cause you know, for, for my team, for example, I mean, we're, we're, pull, we're at a, um, you know, generally at a more, more senior band that we're, that we're trying to pull people in. So I like that though. I mean, if you can pull somebody from that lower level up to the next level, then you're creating a vacuum at that lower level that will, I mean, I guess it's a horrible way of looking at it, but the, think, then you can film with more recruits. Well, I really think that it's also, it's very limiting to think about, um, hiring, um, diverse candidates as being kind of like a, like a finite resource, you know, like, um, that like, oh my gosh, we're going to hire all, all of the technical women. They'll all be gone. No, they're not going to all be gone. Like, actually there's a lot of them. And I think that oftentimes there's this like false sense of scarcity and that false sense of scarcity comes from the fact that organizations have not been very good at identifying where all of these people are. I mean, there's a lot of research that also talks about how a lot of women with technical backgrounds particularly end up leaving the tech industry and they may bring technical skills to some other field. Um, mm. Like, you know, they end up in like a nonprofit or something like that, which is fine. And there's no reason, you know, that if you want to take that path, you you shouldn't, but that they end up not wanting to work in the industry because they are frustrated and alienated and burned out by it. And I mean, Again, I just think that the problem is not that there is some scarcity. I think that that's artificial. Like we we often think that there is scarcity of diverse candidates because we're not looking for them in the right places and because we've we've developed an industry that is actively alienating to them. Um, and that if we change that, that you would find that there are lots and lots of candidates to go around. Yeah, and and I I agree with that. I mean, all all I can think about is kind of like my personal perspective, because um, that's the perspective I have, unfortunately. And um, I mean, like the the problem that I ran into on my team, you know, I go to HR and I'm like, okay, 
tell me who's applying. Like, what, what are we getting? And I know there's a lot of psychology. I don't, I don't think your book talked about this at all about like the wording that you use. And, and I, I think a lot it's of huge. that is, yeah, that is, that is huge. So like, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very, you know, careful that, although I'm actually not even writing the, the job descriptions, mm-hmm. um, but those are all reviewed and like, you know, there's, there's teams that are very, um, sensitive to, to how those are written so that we are getting those diverse candidates. Um, you know, so I go to HR and I say, okay, what do you got for me? Uh, we have 20 men. <laughs> like, Oh, you know, like that, that's the situation that I'm, that I'm in. So then, then it's really, you know, the, the reality of the situation for me is I'm basically, I am going to these other companies and I'm stealing them away. And, and for me, like, I, I don't know what else to do. I mean, I think that part of that definitely is how things are written. Part of that is how things are promoted. I mean, what are, what are the ways that you hear about jobs? Because I will tell you, I hear about jobs via my network, yeah. right? And I think that that's true for a lot of people, especially um, once you're a little bit established in tech. I mean, it is it is a field like many fields that is um, you benefit dramatically based on who you know. Yep. Well, you know, statistically, um, did you know that most white people in this country don't have friends who aren't white. Like if you are white in the United States, odds are good that you, so is your network. Yep. And I mean, you know, how many, how many like white men in a similar role as you, do you know, in your network versus women versus people of other, other um, racial or ethnic backgrounds? Like if you actually looked at it, you might realize that your network is creating some of this problem. Right. Mm-hmm. And it takes work to change that network. I mean, it, it absolutely takes work. Um, but um, if you, you know, it's kind of like, oh, once again, right? It's like, oh, well, we changed the job description and we still got the same results. It's like, okay, well, then you're going to need to look at some other variables, right? Mm-hmm. That was like one variable. So what are the other variables at play there? Yeah. Raygun gives you, hold on, scrap that. You've heard this ad way too much. Raygun is giving us an awesome chance to give away a free year's startup plan of Raygun crash reporting. In addition, Three runners-up will win swag packs that include t-shirts and other freebies. You definitely want some of that. What do you have to do? That's a simple thing. Just let us know. What's the biggest programming fail you've ever seen? What's the nastiest bug you've ever caught? Let us know. Email us at feedback at msdevshow.com. Contest ends at the end of November. Hurry up and get it in now. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, because I did want to cover some of the other great stuff that you had in the book. Um, one thing was around personas and like, what is the right way to create personas? Because you had some really good examples of bad examples, or maybe I guess they're just bad examples in your book. And that you should want to define that too. <laughs> Defi- sure, oh, define yeah. persona. We can talk about personas. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, personas are something I see in most of the companies I talk to these days, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, and they look really different in different places. Um, personas, though, at, at their most basic, it's like, let's create these sort of um, amalgamated, anonymized uh, depictions of people, fake people. And we're going to talk about, you know, what they're doing, what they need, what they want. So, you know, I don't know. Susan is 32 and she's a financial planner and she likes to use this software to do X, Y, and Z, right? And one of the things that I've seen happen over the years, and this is particularly true for folks on kind of more on the design side, is I've seen personas sort of take on a life of their own where they get a lot of like demographic information built into them. They get a lot of info built into them about sort of like, um, you know, Susan is 32 and uh, she's single and she makes $100,000 a year and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what you end up with is this 
really complete seeming snapshot of a person, but they're not real, right? Like this is just like a, this is like some fake idealized user. And because of that, they get all of this information wrapped in them that people then start associating like with how somebody thinks and feels and operates. So Mm -hmm. for example, I have actually seen this happen on teams where they'll say like, oh no, but, um, women think X because the one woman persona that they had Mm -hmm. happened to have this particular motivation. And it's like, do we actually know that that's true? Um, And is that's, that's like painting with such a broad brush. Well, and it's an assumption based on assumption based on an assumption. Right, exactly. And so I, I tend to think that I think that personas can be a really great tool. I have certainly used many of them. I have made many of them in my life. Um, I have also pulled back from some things that I used to include in them. Like I've started really avoiding including like pictures of people, which I used to do because it felt more human. It felt more real. Um, but that can be a problem, right? Because it can make people assume that they're really only designing for that narrow slice. And it can really make it easy for them to leave out all of these other people we talked about earlier, right? So stress cases. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also thinking about, you know, making sure the personas are reflective of um, sort of imperfect lives, right? Like it's not like you can't just have this person who's like, shiny, happy, smiling, using your product and loving it, you have to think about what goes wrong in their life or what's stressful in their life. Um, I remember I read this interview a while back with, um, with Stuart Butterfield from Slack. And he was talking about how one of the things that's really important to them there is have people understand that like, people don't just necessarily show up and use Slack and, and have a great day. Like they may have just had a fight with their spouse and then fought with terrible traffic on the way in and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because that's what, that's what life is like, right? Like sometimes you get in a fight with your spouse and then you have to go to work and your day sucks. Well, like let's remember that, you know, we want our product to be fun to use. And a lot of people like using Slack, but we can't forget that these are actual humans. And, um, and so I think about that a lot in the context of personas and the way that um, kind of making them these shiny, happy people encourages teams to laser focus on ways to delight those shiny, happy people like mini cupcakes. Ooh, how fun without realizing the ways that could go wrong. Mm-hmm. So do you have any examples of maybe how things have gotten better? Are we starting to make progress in this area? You know, I think that's a tough question because I think that there are there are definitely more and more people who want things to get better and who are trying. But um, you do see companies often making similar mistakes over and over again. Um, and I and I think, for example, you look at something like the Google Maps thing, right? And mm-hmm. They pulled that feature like right away. They realized it was a problem and they pulled it. And that I would say that is an improvement because I think a couple of years ago, you would have gotten a lot more like, um, what's the big deal mm-hmm. kind of response. And and I think that there's more recognition that, you know, oh, maybe this is a problem. However, um, what I'm not seeing enough of is um, – sort of that systemic change, right? So like, for example, um, one of the things that I, I talk about in the book that that happened um, to Eric Meyer that I wrote Design for Real Life with was this experience he had with Year in Review at Facebook. So those little packages they would serve uh, serve up of your like top content of the year and how they served up this photo um, that they put on the cover of his album that was of his daughter who had died that year. And they surrounded it with these Facebook um, illustrations of people dancing at a party. And it was just heartbreaking for him mm-hmm. to have that thrown back in his face when he didn't want it. 
And Facebook said like, oh my gosh, we are so sorry. We did not want this to happen. We we're going to do better. And they, they actually changed the way the product worked the next year. And so you think, yeah, they're getting better. They're getting it. And I think that the people there did, I mean, like the individual product owners, designers, they did get it. Mm -hmm. They did want to do better. But as a company, you know, three years later, Facebook is still building features almost exactly like that. I mean, a few weeks ago, I saw a, uh, a journalist in the UK, or sorry, not in the UK, a journalist from The Guardian, though. Um, she's a tech journalist. She had posted this Instagram photo that was a, it was a snap of her, um, of her email that she'd received. And this email was full of like rap, uh, graphic rape, rape threats. So it was this really upsetting email. And she posted it to her Instagram to be like, this is something that happens when you're a woman who was working in public. And um, Facebook took that because it owns Instagram and put it into an ad for Instagram and then served that ad up to her friends on Facebook who don't use Instagram. Right. So it's like, Hey, your friends are using Instagram. Look at these great photos. <laughs> you terrible. would get. If you used Instagram. <laughs> it was terrible, but it's fundamentally the same yeah. problem where it's like they had decided that yeah. a popular photo meant a good photo to surface and that they were able to make these algorithmic decisions about what they're going to surface to whom when um, without thinking about the consequences. So it's yeah. like, yes, at an individual level, I'm sure that the product owner um, who did the year in review product that first year and had this story go viral and felt really bad about it. I am sure that he is thinking about these things, but it's not making its way enough upstream or it's not right. powerful enough to change these practices at the macro level. And so I don't want to be dire. I do think there's an opportunity for things to get better. But um, but I'm I'm a little bit disheartened when I see these kinds of things happening over and over. And what I'm hopeful of is that the new scrutiny on tech that we're seeing this year, um, stemming from you know the these investigations into the Russian meddling in the election, stemming from sort of the implosion at Uber, all of this stuff. I'm hoping that that creates more reflection within tech, and that that creates a lot more willingness to like take this seriously and not kind of make fixes ad hoc, but to really think about why do we keep letting this happen? Yeah. Well, we need to lighten the mood a little bit. So what is the funniest example of poorly designed software in your book? So oh my gosh. the one that stood out to me was the, uh, the withings talking about, uh, bait, yes. uh bait loss in a, yes, a I think that one's the funniest too. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So my friend, I mean, there's lots of examples that are funny, right? So my yeah. friend, Dan Hahn, he has a smart scale. Mm -hmm. Um, so his smart scale sends him emails which, right, like you're getting emails from your scale now. Yeah. Um, and he gets this email that's like, hey, Calvin. Calvin's the name of his son. Yeah. Hey, Calvin, you know, like, let's put you on a weight plan. Like, you know, we're going to shed those extra pounds. He was like 30 pounds or something. Well, yeah. So his son is a toddler. And yeah. like, lo and behold, <laughs> every week the kid weighs more, right? Like, they're like, oh, my gosh, look at this terrible weight gain. Trend. If you continue like, on no, this like, trend. <laughs> you're going to grow up someday. Yeah, you're going to be. And it's like, yeah, it's like they never size. they never anticipated it. And it yeah. was, it's it's pretty funny when you get this email yeah. about your toddler because your toddler doesn't care, right? Your toddler right. is not reading this email feeling bad. But that scenario, like. There are people for whom that wouldn't be very funny. And right. I think that it's just such a missed opportunity to think about like, oh, like people use this product for lots of reasons. Like there's more than one reason that people weigh themselves. Yeah. Because um, he got similar stuff too when his wife had been pregnant and then she had the baby. And it's like, congratulations, you hit a new low weight. And she's like, <laughs> yeah. Don't even. Yeah. The one with the baby too. I mean, so now you got me thinking right now I'm thinking, um, a little bit differently, you know, um, even in that example, I mean like that person, they, they could have gone through 
Um, they could have had weight issues. I mean, like it could have been a preemie and they could have been like the baby could have been like struggling for life. And it's like, they're like celebrating every single pound. And now it's like getting thrown at like, Hey, you're gaining weight way too fast. And they're just like, you know, hopefully they can laugh about it, but I could see people who might not. Well, no, I mean, if you think about it too, sending a congratulations, like congratulations, you hit a new low weight. That is a message that is only going to be positive if hitting a new low weight is a good thing for you. Yeah. If you hit a new low weight because you just gave birth, it might be funny. Mm-hmm. If you hit a new lo- low weight because you just gave birth and like there was a complication in delivery and oh yeah, I didn't even think like, of that. It might not be funny at all. I, I was trying um, to improve the mood. You know. Here. <laughs> well, you know, I think I think the thing is, look, like these tech failures, they can be funny, and we yeah. can and we should laugh at them. Mm-hmm. But I think it is important that we also look at. Um, you know, this can actually harm people like tech is really powerful. And um, we we have to take responsibility for that power and to think about the the impact that we have. It is amazing to work in an industry where we have this much potential to affect people's lives. Um, but, you know, let's think about the ways that 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 could go wrong, because if we don't, if we're not willing to talk about the ways that it can go wrong, we will be blindsided by them. And None of us want that, you know, like, do you want to find out in another couple of years that your work was responsible for something like impacting an election? Um, No, right? Like, at least not because not because of like foreign interference, right? Like you wouldn't Mm -hmm. want that. You wouldn't want to be responsible for fake news or you wouldn't want to find out that a feature you designed on Twitter resulted in like increased harassment of women, right? Like you don't want those outcomes. And so the only way that you avoid those outcomes is by saying like, okay, we're going to have conversations about this early and often and make this a part of what we do. Yeah, absolutely. So lots, lots of great stuff there. Uh, where can people get your book? Uh, should be pretty much anywhere, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, local independent bookseller, if you can find one. Yep. I got mine from Amazon and, and that that's when we found out that there's uh on the, the buy it with one click, there's no, there's no way you can't add it to your card and change the credit card. Um, so a fun little, <laughs> Oh, and another fun little thing, Jason. Yeah. Uh, if you do change your credit card, it takes more than several minutes to uh, take effect. <laughs> so I changed my credit card, bought it with one click and it used the wrong card. Oh, nice. I believe this is also why uh, I've, I've built a lot of things to my husband's card on accident. Whoops. Okay. <laughs> sure. worked out in the yeah, end. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's why. That's why. Uh, very cool. Very cool. Uh, Carl, what do we have for the dev tip of the week? Uh, so there is another really cool VS Code add-in that I think a lot of web developers are going to be interested in. It's an alternative to Postman. So with Postman, you can kind of, you know, put in a URL and your parameters and make an HTTP request and, and get your results back. But it's really cool. You can have that all embedded within the tool that you're writing your application in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as much as I like Postman and Postman is great, there's already more features in this in plugin for VS Code. Oh, really? So if you're a web developer and you use Postman a lot, I would definitely check this out. It's pretty cool. Okay. Yeah, I saw this tip, but and I've been I've I've wanted to try it. I just haven't gotten to it yet. But man, VS Code for the win, right? Yep. And another web development uh tip, we get a two for today. Uh if you're using Edge and uh you're using the the developer tools, uh I have a link in the show notes. Go check it out. It has all of the shortcuts for the uh, dev-, dev tools to navigate uh, around uh, easier and just make your dev experience that much quicker with keyboard shortcuts. 
Very cool. So, Sarah, pick a number between one and four, and we have this kids' game that we play. All right. Um, three. Three. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Would you rather sleep on the sidewalk for seven nights straight during normal weather or one night or for one night while it rains? Well, I grew up in Oregon, so I'm going to go one night while it rains because I'm fine with the rain. Yeah. Well, in Oregon, rain, I mean, it's just a. Uh, um, I mean, it's just a drizzle. Like a, you, in the morning, you just go like this and you'll be dry. <laughs> it's just a state of being, though. It's just a kind of yeah. consistent dampness. Yeah. <laughs> no, act, so I'm in Seattle and it actually snowed today. So I don't know what the heck is going on. I heard that. Meanwhile, I'm in Philadelphia and it was 75 degrees, which is also weird <laughs> well, and bad. That's the way it was here like three days ago. So, you know, whatever. So, Carl, pick a number. I'll take number two. Number two. Would you rather be great at all? Actually, I think yeah, you've... You've had that one. Hold on. Let me pick a different number two. I just didn't. I forgot to cross it off. Number two. Here we go. Would you rather have your parents call you Snookums and Cupcake? There's the cupcake again. In front of all your friends or have to play a two-hour game of Twister with someone else's fat and sweaty grandma and grandpa? I'm going to go with number one. (laughs) Call you Snookums and Cupcake. and Actually... At a certain point, that's probably cool. <laughs> like, look how awesome my parents are. Uh, okay, Sarah, um, thank you so much for uh, for coming on here. Where can uh, where can other people find you? You can find me at sarahwb.com okay. or on Twitter, Sarah and Marie. Awesome. And we'll have a link to all those and much more in the show notes. But thank you so much for coming on here. This was this was just super awesome. I loved all of the concrete examples you have in the book and I encourage everybody to go out and read this book because it's super eye opening. Cause you know, you can always take like the, the direct path and, and not think about these things. Uh, but if you read the book and you start to think about these things, it's going to make you a, a better developer and you're going to surround yourself with, uh, with more diverse people that, and, and everything is going to be better because of it. So thank you so much for coming on here and talking about this. Yeah. Jason and Carl, thank you so much for having me. 